The following sermon is by Boyd Johnson, pastor of Treasuring Christ Church in Athens, Georgia. More information about Treasuring Christ Church can be found at tccathens.org. Christmas and Easter are two days that we set aside to celebrate significant events in the life of Jesus. Scripture doesn't require us to set aside those days, but celebrating the birth of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus on set days does help us remember Christ and worship Him and even be witnesses to the lost about Christ on those days. But one event in the life of Jesus deserves more attention. Our neglect of this event has created a whole in our theology. It wasn't always so neglected. The so-called Apostles' Creed, which dates back many centuries ago, not written by the Apostles, but dating back many centuries ago, mentions this event despite its brevity. And the New Testament treats this event as quite significant. One theologian has said that without this event, Easter is incomplete. And the second coming is impossible. That's exactly right. The event I'm referring to is the ascension. When Jesus rose from the dead, Scripture tells us that He appeared to His disciples and taught them about the kingdom of heaven for a period of 40 days. After those days, He gathered His apostles on the Mount of olives. There he gave them some final instructions and promises. And then he rose up from the earth into the sky until he was covered by a cloud. With that, he was gone from heaven. Now, the reason I bring up the ascension this Sunday is to help us in our study of Paul's letter to the Philippians. In our study, we've come to the threshold of one of the greatest passages about Christ in all of Scripture, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. In that passage, Paul explains that Christ humbled himself and became a man and suffered a criminal's death, but he rose from the dead in exaltation, and now he sits at the Father's right hand. That's where he is. So the passage, Philippians 2, 5-11, begins with Christ's humiliation and ends with Christ's exaltation. But in order to more fully appreciate Christ's exaltation, we need to understand what happened between Him rising from the grave and Him sitting down at the right hand of God the Father. There's a step between Christ's resurrection and Christ's occupation of heaven. That step is how He got to heaven. He got to heaven by His ascension. And that's what I want us to think about this morning in preparation for that great passage in Philippians 2 that we'll study in the weeks to come. 
Think of this sermon as an excursus, an important digression from our verse-by-verse study so that we'll have a richer understanding of that passage when we get to it, especially the word exaltation, which comes later in that passage. So as we think about Christ's ascension, I want us to consider first the story of the ascension, the story of the ascension. And the most detailed description of Christ's ascension is found in Acts chapter 1. Again, on the Mount of Olives, Jesus promised His disciples that they would be baptized by the Holy Spirit and become His witnesses across the earth. And then Luke writes, beginning in verse 9, And when He, Jesus, had said these things, as they were looking on, He was lifted up. And a crowd took Him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. That's the story of the ascension. Now, I just want to make three observations about this story. First, the passage makes clear that Jesus truly rose from the earth into heaven. And it makes this clear by using four verbs. Four verbs used to describe Jesus' ascension. In verse 9, the first verb is lifted up. It's a verb used to describe something being raised. For example, the same word is used later in Acts chapter 27, verse 40, to describe the hoisting, the raising, the lifting up of a sail on a boat. Now here, the verb is passive. Jesus was lifted up, indicating that Jesus was acted upon. Perhaps that's to indicate that the Father was the one drawing Him up to heaven. There's a second verb, also in verse 9, and that's took. A cloud took him. Now that's a verb that means to carry upward. And possibly the idea the cloud took him is the idea that the cloud carried him upward, conveyed him upward until he vanished from the apostle's sight. And then the third verb is in verse 10. And it's went. The apostles gazed into heaven as Jesus went. This is just a general word for going on a journey. You could say that Jesus journeyed up. And then there's the fourth verb. In verse 11, this verb is spoken by the angels. Jesus was taken up. It's interesting that the angels are there. Why are the angels there? I think the angels came to the apostles to confirm with their mouths what the apostles saw with their eyes, that it was real. Jesus was taken up. The verb taken up is used later in Acts to describe boarding a ship. By His ascension, Jesus boarded heaven, so to speak. 
So all four of these verbs point us to the conclusion that Jesus moved vertically from the ground to the heavens where he disappeared. That's what happened. If you had been standing there, that's what you would have saw. Historically, this event occurred in time, in space. Now let me give you a second observation about this story. And it's this. Jesus' ascension was visible and gradual. It was visible and gradual. That is, His disappearance was not a vanishing act like a magic show. The apostles watched as He left them just as one might watch a ship setting sail over the horizon. He gradually faded out of sight as he got further and further away from him. So this ascension was observable. It took place over a period of time. Short period of time, but a period of time. It was something they could witness. And it was something they could describe to others who weren't there. So his ascension was unlike his resurrection in this respect. With the resurrection, no one actually saw Christ rise from the dead. The disciples were witnesses of His death, witnesses of His placement in the tomb. And on the other side of the resurrection, they were witnesses that He was alive again after He had died. But no one actually saw Christ rise from the dead in the tomb, unlike the raising of Lazarus. Jesus was gone when the stone was rolled away. The stone wasn't rolled away because he had to get out. The stone was rolled away so that his followers could get in and see that he was already gone. But the ascension was different. The apostles witnessed it. They saw him lift up off the earth and fade out of sight. Now, had Jesus simply vanished from the face of the earth without anybody witnessing it. People today might still be searching for Him. After all, if He's the God-man, and He is, who will never die again, and He will never die again, then if nobody saw Him ascend, then maybe He's somewhere still on the earth. But the apostles didn't go searching for Jesus because they knew where he went. And none of the other disciples went searching for him either. And nowhere in the New Testament is anyone in the churches searching for Jesus. Why not? Because the apostles told Christ's followers of his ascension. They witnessed it and then they told others what happened. This was an event that they taught. They taught not only that Christ died and rose from the dead, but also that He ascended into heaven. Now we take this fact for granted. But if all you knew was that Jesus died and rose from the grave and is alive, wouldn't you want to know where on earth you could find Him? But you can't find Him physically walking the earth. Because he isn't here. He resides bodily 
in heaven at the Father's right hand. That's where he is. Third observation from this story is that Jesus was caught up into a cloud. Would that we could go into the significance of that from the Old Testament and showing you that this is um, a fulfillment of prophecy and also a foretelling of a prophecy to come. The angels indicated that this was important. Jesus was caught up into the cloud because Christ will return in the same way. That's what they said. When He comes back, the world will look up to see Him. So, how do we know the ascension really happened given that we weren't there? And that leads us to our second point from the story of the ascension to the support for the ascension. The support for the ascension. What's the evidence for the ascension? Is Acts 1 the only witness? Now, you might wonder why I asked this question. For those of us who believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, one passage is sufficient to believe it really happened. We don't need another passage beyond Acts chapter 1 to believe that it happened. God's Word says it happened, it happened. Luke's narrative here is conclusive proof. No further evidence is necessary. But as you might expect, liberal theologians reject the idea of a literal ascension. They take this passage either symbolically or as an outright myth. The problem there, of course, is that liberal theologians deny divine authorship of Scripture and they deny the inerrancy of Scripture. And because of this, they deny that the story of Christ's ascension can be interpreted literally or that it ever happened at all. But what concerns me more is that when we take a theologically significant event like Jesus' ascension for granted, I think that's where we're at. We take it for granted. We don't think about it very much. When we take a theologically significant event like the ascension for granted, we're on the verge of denying it as well. Whether explicitly or functionally. Someone has said that historically the ascension is the first domino to fall. Now, I haven't done the research to know whether that's factual, that first people deny the ascension, then they deny the resurrection, and so on. But if it's true, then we do well to bolster our belief in the ascension with all the evidence that Scripture provides. And the evidence for the ascension beyond Acts 1 is substantial and weighty. In brief, let me give you four major lines of evidence for the ascension. And we won't cover all the evidence by far, but just four major lines of evidence for the ascension. First, the evidence of compatible accounts. The evidence of compatible accounts. Acts 1 is not the only narrative account of the ascension. Luke also records in his gospel a summary account of the ascension that's in harmony with the story in Acts. Look over in Luke chapter 24, where Jesus has already appeared to His disciples for 40 days. 
And there in Luke 24, he writes in verse 50, And he, that's Jesus, led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Now, on this account, Luke uses different Greek verbs to describe the ascension, but the picture is the same. In verse 51, he says Jesus was carried up into heaven. Different Greek verb, but it's a synonym of lifted up found in Acts 1.9. In the same verse, verse 51, Jesus parted. That's a different verb as well from the apostles. He parted, which is a similar verb to went in Acts 1.10. Two different verbs, same story. Compatible account. So the same movement of Christ from earth to heaven is seen in Luke's Gospel. Now the Gospel of Mark also records the ascension in chapter 16, verse 19. And there we read, So then the Lord Jesus, after He had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. Now, chapter 16, verse 19, is part of the disputed ending of Mark. Now, I don't believe verses 9 to 20 of Mark 16 was written by Mark, nor do I believe it belongs in Scripture, but that's a sermon for another day. Nevertheless, the fact that Christ's ascension is mentioned in that disputed section, along with His resurrection, demonstrates that the early church believed Luke's account. We can say at least that about this disputed section. Mark 16, 19. That the early church believed Luke's account that Christ rose from the earth and was taken up into heaven. So, Luke's gospel contains the only other undisputed narrative of the ascension aside from Acts. But it's not the only gospel to give evidence of the ascension. In fact, all the gospels mention the ascension one way or another, which we'll see as we go. So the first line of evidence is compatible accounts. The second major line of evidence supporting the ascension is the evidence of heavenly revelations. The evidence of heavenly revelations. The book of Acts records that after Jesus' ascension, He was both seen in heaven and heard from heaven, indicating that's where He was. One sighting of Jesus in heaven is found in the familiar story of the stoning of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. You remember this story as Stephen was stoned by the Jews. Luke records that Stephen, Acts 7 verse 55, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing there in heaven. And this vision of Jesus in heaven prompted Stephen's last words according to verse 56. He said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man 
standing at the right hand of God. And then he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Now, was Stephen a reliable witness? Or was he insane or a liar? Well, earlier in the book, he's described as a man, chapter 6, verse 8, full of grace and power. And in chapter 7, verse 55, he's described as full of the Holy Spirit. You can't be those things and be a liar or insane. In other words, his character was unimpeachable and therefore his testimony is credible. Furthermore, the Jews stoned Stephen because he claimed to see Jesus in heaven. As he was being stoned, he had every incentive to disavow his claim in order to save his life. But he didn't do so. The faithful testimony of Stephen then gives evidence that Jesus was in heaven. Paul's conversion in Acts chapter 9 is another revelation of Jesus in heaven. Unlike Stephen, Paul, or Saul at the time, wasn't a follower of Jesus, but a persecutor of Christians when he encountered Jesus ascended. But according to chapter 9, verses 4 and 5, on his way to Damascus seeking to capture Christians, he heard Jesus' voice say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And Saul's life changed forever. He went from being Jesus' chief persecutor to his chief advocate. Each time, Paul recounted the story of his conversion as recorded in Acts. He attributed his conversion to Jesus calling him from heaven. For example, Acts chapter 22, verse 6 and following. As I, this is Paul saying this. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And then in Acts chapter 26, Paul recounts his conversion again. Chapter 26, beginning in verse 13. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now, if you deny Jesus' ascension to heaven, how do you explain Paul's testimony when, as a persecutor of the church, He had great reasons to deny the ascension. So the book of Acts teaches us that Jesus revealed himself from heaven to both Stephen and Paul. Therefore, it follows that if Jesus is in heaven, the ascension is the most plausible way 
that he got there and the ascension must be believed. Third, third line of evidence. We must consider the evidence of the apostles' teachings. If the apostles witnessed the ascension and considered it a theologically important event, then we'd expect that it would be part of their teaching ministry to the church. That is, in fact, the case. For example, Peter wrote in 1 Peter 3.22, very important, 1 Peter 3.22, that Jesus Christ has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers subjected or having been subjected to him. Gone into heaven is Peter's eyewitness testimony of where Jesus went. Peter even preached two sermons soon after the ascension. And in both, he alluded to the ascension. In Acts chapter 2, verse 33, Peter preached that Jesus was exalted at the right hand of God. Where's God? In heaven. Jesus must be there. How did he get there? Peter clearly believed Jesus ascended to heaven. A second sermon, Acts chapter 3, verse 21. Peter preached a second time and said that Jesus is the one whom, quote, heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things. Heaven received Jesus when he ascended into heaven. So from a man who was there when Jesus ascended, Peter taught that Jesus went into heaven, sits at God's right hand, and will remain there until an appointed time in the future. That's where Jesus is. Paul, in his letters, frequently referred to the ascension or alluded to it as he taught about Christ's exalted position in heaven. And because there's so many references, I'll just give you two instances of many. Ephesians 4.8 Paul wrote that Jesus ascended on high. Conversely, Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 4.16 that in the last days Christ will descend from heaven. So Paul spoke of Christ's ascension and His return, His descension, in the same way the angels did in Acts chapter 1. John taught in the book of Revelation that Christ will one day return from heaven, which means Christ must already be in heaven. In chapter 1, verse 7, he says, Behold, he's coming with the clouds. That's just exactly what the angel said in Acts chapter 1. In chapter 5, Jesus is pictured in the throne room of heaven. In chapter 19, John saw a vision of the future with heaven open so that he could see in and Jesus coming out of heaven on a white horse to judge the nations. So again, from a man who was there when Jesus ascended, John taught that Jesus is currently in heaven. 
And lastly, the writer of Hebrews wrote in chapter 4, verse 14, that Jesus is the great high priest who passed through the heavens. Passed through the heavens is probably a depiction of the ascension. So in summary, the teachings of the apostles and prophets affirm that they themselves believed what they saw with their eyes on the Mount of Olives. What they saw was no mirage. Jesus' ascension is a reality. Now, a final line of evidence for the ascension is Jesus' promises. Jesus foretold of His ascension and prepared His followers to anticipate it. Now, we can look at a number of passages but again, we'll just look at two. In John chapter 6, verse 62, when many of his followers were offended by his teachings, he replied, John six sixty-two, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Greater than the offensiveness of his teachings is his ascension to the Father. Because if he ascends, it means that he died, he rose, and is now exalted at the Father's right hand as king. Well, no wonder the liberals don't want to believe the ascension. John chapter 20, another passage, John 20, verse 17. This is after Jesus' resurrection. Mary, remember what Mary did? She took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And what did Jesus say to her? Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. So immediately after His resurrection, Jesus resumed preparing His disciples for His ascension. Well, if nothing else, I hope what's landing on you right now is that the ascension must be significant. And that's the last point I want to make. From the story of ascension to the support for the ascension, and now the significance of the ascension. What difference does it make? Well, the answer could be a sermon all on its own. And so I'll simply give you eight brief answers among many. Eight reasons why the ascension is significant. First, his ascension marked the end of his self-limitation. The end of his self-limitation. Now, we're going to study this in detail in the coming weeks in Philippians chapter 2, where Paul says that when Jesus came to earth, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Suffice it to say that while Jesus was on earth, 
the full glory of his majesty was concealed behind the veil of his humanity. The full glory of his majesty was concealed by, by the veil of his humanity. But now that he's ascended, though he remains fully man and fully God, his glory is now fully unveiled. Which is why he appears the way he does in the book of Revelation when John sees him. Totally different in chapter 1. So his ascension marked the end of his self-limitation. Second, and related to the first point, his ascension marks the fullness of his exaltation. Theologians talk about the two states of Jesus Christ. His humiliation and his exaltation. His humiliation includes his incarnation, becoming man, his suffering, his death and his burial. His exaltation includes his resurrection, his ascension, his what theologians call his session. Session is an old word for sitting down, his seatingness at the right hand, and his second coming. Resurrection, ascension, session at, at the right hand of God and his second coming. In a sense, what his birth is to his humiliation, his ascension is to his exaltation. Both events, his birth and his ascension, mark his passage from one state to another. His ascension brought him into the fullness of his exaltation, just as his birth brought him into the fullness of his humiliation. When Christ ascended, He resumed His pre-incarnate glory. The glory He had before He came to the earth. While on earth, Jesus prayed, John 17, verse 5, Father, glorify Me in Your own presence with the glory that I had with You before the world existed. A pre-incarnate glory. Veiled while He was humiliated on the earth, which He resumed. That prayer is answered now. He resumed when he ascended to heaven. So that prayer was answered when he returned to heaven through his ascension. Third, his ascension marks his reign over all the universe. Third reason why his ascension is significant. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 to 22. Paul says that God raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. That happens because he's now seated at the right hand of God the Father. Well, how did he get there? He got there through his ascension. Fourth, his ascension foreshadows our future ascension into heaven with him. 
Jesus' ascension was the first time a resurrected man entered heaven. Body and soul. Right now, if you passed away today, your body would, stay be, would still be here. Your soul with Jesus instantly. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. One day, your soul or spirit and body will be united again. But when Jesus went to heaven, He went body and spirit. Same time. He is the first time a resurrected man has entered heaven. He is our forerunner, as Hebrews 6.20 says. And one day, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16-17, that the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them. Where? In the clouds to meet the Lord. Where? In the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. So Christ's ascension foreshadows our rapture. Fifth, His ascension assures us that our final home is with God. Jesus said in John 14, Verses 2 to 3. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. When Christ ascended, he went to a place. And that place is where we'll one day join Him so that we can live with God forever. Our home with God. Number six. His ascension allowed Him to send the Holy Spirit. Jesus said in John 16, verse 7, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away... The Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. Jesus' ascension is necessary for the Holy Spirit to come. Unless Jesus left the earth, the Holy Spirit would not come. And when the Holy Spirit came to indwell those who trust in Christ, the Spirit also empowered Christ's people with spiritual gifts. Which is what Ephesians 4.8 says. Paul says, therefore, it says, when he ascended, Jesus ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Spiritual gifts to men. In other words, Christ's ascension had to happen before spiritual gifts were given to his people. Seventh, His ascension marked Christ's new ministry for His people. When He got to the right hand of God the Father, He gained a new ministry. When He ascended, Christ sat down at the Father's right hand because His saving work was done. But His ministry to people remains. 
as he sits at the Father's right hand, he intercedes for us and he advocates for us. So, Hebrews 7.25. One of my favorite verses in Hebrews. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Christ is there at the right hand of God the Father. We just use this word, praying for us, interceding for us. You always have, as a Christian, you always have at least one person, and we actually know from Romans, a second person, the Holy Spirit, praying for you. Jesus is always praying for you. The Holy Spirit is always praying for you. I don't know if anybody else is praying for you. I know those two people are praying for you. Those two persons of the Trinity. And John, 1 John 2, 1. 1 John 2, 1 says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. That's what he's doing. He's an advocate for us. All this came about so that he could begin this new ministry and it came about through the ascension. So that he could ascend to the Father's right hand. Lastly, number eight, his ascension marks the way Christ will return. As the angel said at the ascension, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The depiction of Jesus' second coming in Matthew and in Revelation show this very thing. He comes on the clouds. Well, believe it or not, a lot more could be said about the ascension. But hopefully this survey of the critical event in Jesus' life has helped you appreciate it a little more. It doesn't matter whether you celebrate Jesus' ascension on the Sunday traditionally marked for that occasion, which was two Sundays ago. It doesn't matter whether you make a celebration out of it, just like it doesn't matter whether you celebrate Christmas on December 25th. There's nothing sacred about December 25th any more than December 26th or December 24th. It doesn't matter whether you celebrate on a particular day, but we do need to remember His ascension and recognize it as significant so that we can more fully worship Him and be His witnesses in the world. Well, let's close in a word of prayer. Father, thank You for revealing these truths to us. Though we weren't there at the ascension, we can picture it in our mind's eye because of the descriptions here in Your Scriptures which are inerrant and authoritative. And because we find it in Your Scriptures, we know it's true. This is what happened. Historically, it occurred in time and space. And had we been there, we would have saw it just as it's depicted here in our Bibles. We're thankful that though we don't need any more evidence than Acts chapter 1, we find plenty of evidence in Your Scriptures that Jesus really did ascend. We don't have to worry about where He is. We know where He is. 
We know he's at your hand right now. As we pray to you, we know Jesus is sitting right next to you. Thank you that he sat down because his work of salvation was done. And yet his ministry to us was not done. He's still for us, just like he was on the cross. He's still for us every day, interceding for us, advocating for us. And we need it. We need it. We know we only need to look at this last day, maybe even just this morning, and know we need his ministry to us. And he continues to do that. He always lives to intercede for us. We can't wait until one day we meet him face to face, see you face to face, and are caught up in the clouds, ascend ourselves just like our Savior ascended. We look forward to that day. And thank you for showing us the many reasons why this ascension is significant. We pray that our appreciation of it would only grow so that whatever day it is, we would cherish His ascension, count it significant, and celebrate it in our lives because of the many benefits that it's brought to us. We pray that all of this information would find its way into our hearts so that as we continue our study in Philippians chapter 2, And we get to that great word, exaltation, that's found there. Our hearts would sing because we know so much more about it now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Treasuring Christ Church in Athens, Georgia. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not alter the content in any way without permission. Treasuring Christ Church exists to spread a passion for the fame of Christ's name in Athens and around the world. We invite you to visit Treasuring Christ Church online at tccathens.org. There you'll find other resources available to you and information about our upcoming gatherings.